0: Please take a moment right now to hit like, subscribe, and share.
1: Especially share. That's the big one.
2: I grew up in a small town in the Ottawa Valley. No, (laughs) that's not right. That's the other guy. I grew up in a medium-large town about an hour south of Chicago. I'm Joel Haas, and when I was a kid... Going to the movies was a big deal. I remember going to the drive-in movies with my parents and siblings to see movies like Herbie Rides Again and The Parent Trap. Mom would get us all in our pajamas. Dad would load the pillows and sleeping bags in the back of the station wagon, and off we'd go. In the years just before I became a teenager, I discovered old films, and many a rainy Saturday afternoon was redeemed by finding a Mickey Rooney movie on TV. I especially love the Andy Hardy movies, uh, the Babes in Arms movies, the Babes on Broadway, those kind of flicks. They always seemed to be getting into some kind of a jam that seemed impossible to fix, until Mickey Rooney would say, hey, wait a minute, gang, I know what we'll do. Let's put on a show. And of course, all the other kids would rally around him, and these kids would save the day gosh, this is going to be swell. One summer, I learned that a family in our neighborhood was up against it financially, and I actually summoned my inner Mickey Rooney and tried to rally all my friends to put on a show that would save the day, but we truly were babes in arms, and the thing really never got going. Looking back, I can see the biggest problem with my plan. Well, after the fact that I was 11 years old and had absolutely no organizational skills or experience, the even bigger problem was that none of my friends were talented. Tim had a magic trick that he couldn't get going, couldn't get to work. Debbie played the trumpet, but she was just starting to learn. And none of us knew anything about singing and dancing in unison like All of Mickey Rooney's friends were able to do well our big show never happened but I took two lessons from that experience first you can't wait around for others to get excited about your vision if it's gonna be it's up to me if you want something done step out and give it a try you might fail but then again you might not and secondly I learned to appreciate the optimism of these old movies Mickey Rooney was the teenager I wanted to be. Up against it, I mean, there seemed to be always something going wrong, and I could relate to that. But no matter how dark things looked in his world, if he just hung in there and seized an opportunity when it came along, everything could turn out right. And many's the time, I needed to hear that message. And that's just one reason that I love old movies.
0: Hello, film historians. I'm Derek, and I love old movies. We've got Sam the Sidekick here.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode 49.
0: You know, we're kind of creeping up on episode 52.
1: More like stampeding headlong.
0: Of course, when we hit 52, that will be our one-year anniversary... Or so you would think.
1: Yes, because in actuality, we did an extra episode back in January. Mm -hmm. So our true one-year anniversary episode will be number 51.
0: And episode 51 comes out on August 4th.
1: Which is one year to the day that we released our first episode, Rope of Sand.
0: That was a very long time ago.
1: Seems like.
0: So that's coming up. And maybe we'll do something a little bit special. Who knows? Um, If you'd like to have your voice be part of that show, maybe give us a little anniversary shout out. Be sure to get in touch so we can make that happen.
1: But in the meantime, today's show. Yes. Continuing with our month of listener requests. And this time, we're going kind of old school, kind of funny, kind of dark. Really, it checks all the boxes.
0: That's because we are taking a look at 1944's Arsenic and Old Lace, directed by Frank Capra and starring Cary Grant.
1: Legit? This is a pretty good request.
0: You know what else was legit pretty good? That cold open.
1: Oh yeah, and how?
0: That one comes to us from Joel, who's a listener and a super cool dude who definitely has a way with words. He got in touch and we were really happy to have him do that open for us. And if that is the sort of thing you would like to do... Don't be shy. Let us know.
1: It's always fun chatting with listeners. You never know when you're going to make a new friend. Friend. Podcast friend. All over the world friend. And if you'd like to be one of our friends, all you have to do is get in touch on the socials. Tell them how. Well, there's the Facebook.
0: I Love Old Movies, the podcast.
1: There's also the Instagram.
0: At I Love Old Movies, the podcast.
1: Don't forget about El Twitter. Who
0: could? At Ilom Podcast.
1: Or send us a good old-fashioned email.
0: I love old movies, the podcast, at gmail.com. All one word. And while you're at it, be sure to check us out on Pet Rock Radio, where they are playing our past episodes, along with some of the best music you are going to hear anywhere.
1: We'll link them in the description.
0: So, shall we just jump into this?
1: (laughs) We absolutely shall. Hit the music!
0: The director is the legendary Frank Capra. Earning a degree for chemical engineering, Capra became the only one of his family to have a post-secondary education before serving in World War I. Afterwards, he took on a few odd jobs to support himself and directed his first film, which was a half-hour-long documentary about the visit of the Italian naval vessel Libya to San Francisco, and the reception given to the crew by San Francisco's Italian Athletic Club. The following year, Capra took on a job selling books for philosopher Albert Hubbard where he read an article about a new movie studio in the area. Capra contacted the studio and falsely implied that he had the experience in the film industry, and the studio's founder believed him and gave Capra $75 to direct a one-reel silent film, which Capra completed in two days with amateur actors. He was able to continue finding similar opportunities to work in the film industry and was able to work on a few productions with Max Sennett before working with national studios to produce feature-length films, such as For the Love of Mike in 1927. Capra then spent the next few years with Columbia Pictures, directing almost 10 films in his first year with that studio. He was able to smoothly transition to the world of talkies thanks to his engineering background, with his first all-sound picture being The Younger Generation in 1929. The 1930s continued to be very fruitful for Capra, as several of his films had great success with Academy Awards. It Happened One Night was the first film to win all five top Oscars, and it, was, and it widely established Capra and Columbia Pictures in the film industry. Later on, the film's Mr. Deeds Goes to Town and You Can't Take It With You gave Capra his second and third Oscars for directing. After the U.S. joined World War II, Capra stepped down from his successful directing career in order to serve in the Army. He worked directly under a senior officer, George C. Marshall, and was told to document soldiers and their experiences throughout the war. Capra ended up making a seven-part documentary, the Why We Fight series from 42 to 45, and produced the critically acclaimed The Negro Soldier in 1944. Capra returned to the film industry after the war and founded the studio Liberty Films with two other directors, which was the first independent company that a director ran since United Artists in 1919. The only films that they were able to complete, however, were It's a Wonderful Life and State of the Union. Capper spent a few of his later years with Paramount Pictures, with Riding High and Here Comes the Groom, and practically retired from Hollywood filmmaking the following year. He produced a few educational films for science topics throughout the late 50s and early 60s, including his final film, Rendezvous in Space, in 1964. And after a long and successful career, with almost 60 directing credits, Frank Capper died in 1991 at the age of 94.
1: The writer duo for this film consists of twin brothers Julius and Philip Epstein. After graduating college in 1931, Philip gravitated towards a career of acting while Julius became a professional boxer. However, they quickly reunited and moved to Hollywood together in hopes of working in the film industry. They began writing various screenplays in the mid to late 1930s, producing films such as Fools for Scandal 1938, Daughter's Courageous 1939, and Four Wives in 1939. They wrote many more screenplays throughout the 40s, and although most of their work during this time were documentaries, one of the brothers' biggest claim to fame would have to be their work on Casablanca in 1942. During this time, the brothers worked closely with Warner Brothers, despite having a poor relationship with them. Jack L. Warner eventually gave the Epstein brothers names to the HUAC, Even though the Epstein's were never made to testify, when filling out a questionnaire for the HUAC, they were asked if they were ever members of a subversive organization, and they responded, yes, Warner Brothers. Their careers practically hit a dead end in the 1950s, with hardly any work, before Philip's death in 1952 at the age of 42. Julius continued working through the late 1950s and 60s, with most of his work being various TV series and documentaries. Julius died in 2000 at the age of 91.
0: There is quite a huge cast in this film, and it is anchored by Cary Grant, of whom we have spoken before.
1: Go back and check out episode 29, His Girl Friday, to to hear us talk about this Hollywood legend. We'll wait.
0: And we will turn our focus to the two actresses who play the murderous aunts in this film, and that means starting with Josephine Hull. Following up on the role she originated on Broadway, stage veteran Josephine Hull was able to turn a very limited screen career into something memorable. Despite a five-decade career as a professional actress, Hull only ever made seven films. She made two Silence in the 1920s, and then two more Quick Films for Fox in 1932. Then her success on stage in a series of plays really defined her career. The plays were You Can't Take It With You, Arsenic and Old Lace, and Harvey. These plays were all Broadway hits, and together their runs took up a full ten years of her life. She didn't get to appear in the film version of You Can't Take It With You when it was made in 1938, but she reprised her role as Aunt Abby in Arsenic and Old Lace for Frank Capra, And then her next, and next to final, film was The Adaptation of Harvey, for which she won the Oscar and Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress. Well, continued with some television and stage work before her death in 1957 at the age of 80.
1: The other one of Mortimer's aunts is played by Jean Adair. Born in Canada, Adair worked in vaudeville and Stock Theatre before becoming more established as a stage actress. She actually originated the role of Aunt Martha on Broadway, and was brought along with most of the stage cast to make the film. Adair was not especially prolific as a screen performer, with only ten credits to her name, and five of those are in episodes of television shows. Arsenic and Old Lace was her second film, but she was done making movies by 1947, and out of screen altogether by 1952. Her stage career was more what she was known for, and in theater, she was never short of work. Gina Dare died in 1953 at the age of 79.
0: There are two really interesting anecdotes about the making of this movie, and both of them fall squarely into the what-if category of film history.
1: Oh, those are the best. Sometimes sad, too, though. Because, like, what if we missed out on a better movie?
0: Well, in both of these cases, I'm pretty sure that we did.
1: Oh, drat. Okay, let's hear it. So, when
0: this film was being made, aside from Cary Grant, who had been assigned to the production by Warner Brothers, the intent was to bring the entire Broadway cast out to Hollywood to reprise their roles from the stage onto the silver screen.
1: Did they shut the play down?
0: No. They filled the roles with understudies and replacements, all except one role. One notable role. Really? Who? Who? So the role of Jonathan in the film was played by Raymond Massey, and he did not play Jonathan on stage. And in fact, the stage performer of Jonathan was a very important member of the cast. So much so that he was not only one of the investors in the play, but he received top billing on the marquee.
1: And he didn't want to be in the film?
0: Oh no, he wanted to very much. In fact, he was heartbroken that he wasn't allowed to be.
1: What? Why?
0: Well, the producers of the stage show felt that he was so important to the production, they refused to release him for the eight weeks of shooting. This led to depression and stress and resentment and regret that lasted a very long time for him, as this actor could have redefined himself on screen. And he was an actor whose film image could definitely have benefited from some rehabilitation.
1: Who? Who was it?
0: Boris Karloff.
1: Oh my god! They talk about him all the time in the movie, and they always say that Jonathan looks like Boris Karloff.
0: Because the character was played by Boris Karloff.
1: And he never got to do it. That's so sad.
0: He did turn up in a TV production of Arsenic and Old Lace eventually, but that certainly wasn't the same, and it was a decade later.
1: That's a sad what-if. I'd love to see him in this film, and it's awful to hear how much it affected him.
0: Right? Now, story number two has to do with our star, Cary Grant, and the director, Frank Capra. Grant had taken a lot of very justified criticism for his performance in this film, even calling it his personal least favourite. And to be fair, and charitable, Grant is over-the-top hammy and muggy throughout this entire film, and he even breaks the fourth wall several times, doing Jim from the office stares directly into the camera.
1: Yeah, it's not good. It seems so out of place. Why was he like that?
0: Well, here's the thing. That's how Capra directed him. His initial vision was to go totally over the top. Ugh. But when he was seeing the rushes and the early cuts, Capra knew Grant wasn't coming off that well. And Grant knew it, too. And the Epsteins, they really knew it. And the Epsteins told Capra that Grant's performance would absolutely not work. Capra agreed. And he said he would fix things through editing and reshoots.
1: Okay. Okay. Are we seeing the edited and reshot version? We are not. And why is that?
0: Because it does not exist.
1: Of course not.
0: During production of the film, Capra enlisted in the army to go do his part for the war effort, and while he got special permission to defer his induction until Arsenic and Old Lace finished production, there was no time available for reshoots or re-edits. The film shot and cut is the film we got, and Capra went off to make films for the war. Grant and the Epsteins were stuck with the performance as acted and filmed and no one could do anything about it.
1: Once again, I feel like the what if would have given us a better film. A more even film anyway.
0: The what ifs almost always do. What's the tale of the tape on this one, Sam?
1: Okay, so we have a 7.9 on IMDb. Hmm. The audience score is 92% on Rotten Tomatoes uh-huh. and the tomato meter is 83%. The film won no awards Hmm. and can be watched on YouTube.
0: Theatre critic and anti-marriage author Mortimer Brewster has married the girl next door, Elaine Harper. And when Elaine goes home to pack for a honeymoon in Niagara Falls, Mortimer goes to see his aunts, who raised him, and his brother Teddy, who has a delusional existence where he believes himself to be Teddy Roosevelt.
1: Mortimer's aunts, Abby and Martha, are well-liked in the community and are known for their generosity, especially for people who come to them to rent rooms in their massive home. While packing, Mortimer unexpectedly finds a corpse hidden in a bench near the window. He assumes Teddy has committed a murder, but the aunts explain that they are responsible. They are serial killers who target lonely old men and end their suffering.
0: Their scam is simple. They hang out a for rent sign, lure in a mark, and then poison him with elderberry wine laced with arsenic. And they get poor deluded Teddy to bury the bodies in the basement.
1: Mortimer tries to make sense of all this, and then his other brother, the violent, ugly criminal Jonathan, arrives, with his sidekick, Dr. Einstein, in tow. Jonathan is also a serial killer, and has left bodies around the globe. He's hiding from the police and has a dead body he needs to dispose of.
0: Jonathan learns that his aunts are also murderers. In fact, they're tied in their body count at 12. Jonathan wants to bury his corpse in the basement, but the aunts protest, calling his victim a stranger, whereas theirs were all nice gentlemen.
1: Jonathan has decided that Mortimer probably needs to die as well, and begins to scheme. Mortimer is becoming increasingly unhinged and stressed by all of this and tries to alert the police to Jonathan and Einstein. He also tries to lure his aunts away and have Teddy committed into an asylum. And worse, now convinced that he might be as insane as his entire family seems to be, he tries to end his marriage with Elaine.
0: Things get wrapped up very neatly, with Jonathan getting arrested, Teddy being committed, and his aunts willingly having themselves committed as well to help support Teddy. And they even took a load off Mortimer's mind by telling him he is not their blood relative, but the child of their former cook. Mortimer feels great about this, and he celebrates with his new bride.
1: Okay, so that was fun. Fun, yeah. Maybe a bit long in places. That was a long end. Yeah. With that police guy? Mm-hmm. It just kept going.
0: Speaking of, we need to keep going.
1: Then let's pro and con this guy.
0: Okay, so as always... We don't actually rate films here on the show, there are no stars, there are absolutely no thumbs. We just tell you some things we liked. Some things we didn't. And then, we recommend whether or not you might enjoy giving this one a watch. Take it away. My pros. Number one, this seems like the sort of movie where everyone involved is having a lot of fun. The premise is suitably ridiculous, the characters are all a bit broadly drawn, and the overall film is a bit on the madcap side. But it's a blast on the whole, and clearly the cast are enjoying themselves. There's an energy to the film that projects itself right off the screen and draws the viewer into this zany world. Number two, the characters and the performances of Abby and Martha are wonderful. They are so earnest and low-key, so matter-of-fact. You have two very experienced stage actresses getting on screen fairly late in their careers, and they make the most of it. Their earnest and forthright portrayals of the murderous aunts keep things grounded, and that prevents the film from descending into farce. No easy feat. Number three, Raymond Massey's Jonathan is a fantastic screen villain and Peter Lorre the perfect sidekick. Jonathan's unblinking eyes and facial scars give him an incredible presence, and the intensity he projects with his even, almost behind-the-beat delivery is very powerful. It's very sad... From the perspective of a fan that boris karloff did not get to play the role as he did on broadway but we did get a very worthy fill-in who made the character indelibly his own my cons number one Cary grant is not only insanely over the top in this film it might be argued he is miscast he seems like he's playing a role better suited for james stewart whom in fact he felt would have been better for the role But his constant hamminess and overall cartoonish performance is just way too out of whack with how everyone else is playing their characters, which is very, very straight. If everyone was more over the top, sure, but they they aren't. And that makes Grant's performance stand out even more, and not in the best ways. Number two, the production leans a bit too much into recreating the stage play, with one central location and long takes and the actors using very theatery mannerisms like Abby's Walk, that ridiculous tree set piece. Plays work on stage. Not always, or ever, really, on film. I feel Capra could have made more of a movie here, and less of a stage play adaptation, and come out way ahead. Perhaps having so many of the stage cast in the film informed that artistic decision, I'm not sure. But I don't love it. Screen acting and stage acting are very different things, and they don't mix well. Number three, despite the interesting plot hook, the rapid-fire delivery, the constant introduction of supporting characters and new plot points, this film is a bit dull in spots, and it moves a tad slowly. Perhaps it's the lack of a score. Perhaps it's just not enough butter spread over too much bread sometimes less is more and in the case of this film a bit less might have given us so much more on the whole though it's hard to hate on this movie too much when it's fun it's very fun and when you add in the weird and the dark comedy you have a really interesting wartime era film while cary grant's performance needs a bit of looking past in places i still give this film a watch recommendation it's time well spent And cheaper than a night out at the theater.
1: You're up. Okay, so my pros. One. The plot. It was just really interesting. A guy who's famous for hating marriage gets married and discovers his aunts are murderers? That's a really cool hook. Then everything falls off the rails with his brother Jonathan and everything devolves into chaos. There was a lot going on in this film. While I do think all the action and excitement could have been spread out better throughout the film, I really enjoyed the scenes where we got a lot of new information dumped on us all at once. You could never really predict what was going to happen next, and that was really exciting. 2. The Brewster sisters. They were awesome characters. I loved how relaxed and matter-of-fact they were about everything. They weren't over the top or anything, they were just very natural in their performances and made the entire situation even more ridiculous because of their nonchalance. They were really interesting characters and I liked them a lot. 3. Peter Laurie. I didn't know much about the film going into it, so believe me when I say this was a shock. I see this little weaselly guy come on screen and I was like, That guy gives me Peter Lorre vibes. (laughs) While my dad was just like, that is Peter Lorre. That instantly became a pro for me. I love this guy. He has such a unique presence and I love watching his performances. He makes every movie better. Now my cons. One. The sound quality. It just wasn't great. It sounded kinda fuzzy and soft, so people's words weren't always easy to understand. Plus, something was really off about the volume of the film. No matter how many times we turned the sound up, a random scene would come on, and the sound would just be so quiet I could hardly even hear the dialogue. 2. The sets that aren't in the Brewster's house. There weren't many of them, and we didn't see them for long, but... were ugly. I mean, the scene with Mortimer and Elaine by that tree? What the actual heck was that? The tree looked like a piece of cardboard that had been painted by a child. It was splotchy and looked almost like camouflage? I was definitely glad most of the film took place in the house. 3. Cary Grant's performance I understand what they were trying to go for with this big, over-the-top performance, but it just didn't fit into the film. Everyone else was treating the situations they were in seriously, while Mortimer would make some stupid expression directly into the camera. It felt out of place. I don't really blame Cary Grant. I think he did the best he could with what he was given, but that's how he was directed, and it just didn't work. He didn't feel like a real person, or at the very least, it came across as Mortimer was almost making fun of everything, and that probably wasn't what they were going for. Overall, the film was fine. I didn't love it, but I didn't dislike it either. It's just sort of there for me. I probably wouldn't go out of my way to watch it, but if it came on, I definitely wouldn't turn it off. It's... It's a fun film. It's a fun watch. And you know what? I'd probably say you should watch it yourself.
0: All right, and with that, we come to the end of episode 49, and it looks like we have a double watch recommendation for Arsenic and Old Lace.
1: It was a fun movie. I enjoyed watching it, enjoyed talking about it. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you liked it, too.
0: Be sure to drop us a comment, let us know what you thought, and be sure to mention if you enjoyed Joel's fantastic cold open. Thanks again to him for doing that.
1: And be sure to tune in next week when we wrap up All Requests July with, oh boy, I'm excited about this, another Marx Brothers movie.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we had an outstanding request to do another one of their films, so we are going to do just that. And really, I don't think either of us could be any happier.
1: Horse feathers? Duck soup? A night at the opera?
0: Oh, I'm keeping you guessing. Dread! But until then, be sure to watch more movies, and let people know about our podcast. We're not a secret. You do not have to keep us all to yourself.
1: Listeners spreading the word is the best way for us to grow. So tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might like poisoning their houseguests as much as you do.
0: Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from prefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges,
2: is by The Crocs.